welcome to The Light Pod, brought to you by LightEye, a hub for ideas, education, and, well, a little bit of entertainment when it comes to architectural lighting. I'm your host, Sam Corbel, and today we welcome Robert Solaire from the air back for part two of a podcast on circadian lighting, the science behind it, and the technology that's being implemented today. Robert, thanks for hanging around for part two. It's good to have you back. Thanks for not kicking me out, bringing me back for a second session. We wanted to keep it going and make sure that we really give everybody a full perspective on not only the science behind circadian lighting and what's happening, but how this is all being translated into something that we as humans can actually readily use today and how it may be able to benefit us. But it all starts from that LED, because as we mentioned at the last part of our podcast, you can actually tune an LED and you can create a wavelength or a color that you want. And I know at BIOS, you guys talk a lot about sky blue and 490 nanometers. But before we get to that, walk me through, how do we build a custom LED and how do you convince somebody to do that? Yeah, that's the big part is uh, it's not that it's hard to do it. It's that you got to convince someone why they want to do it. So we convince someone to So what you do is you grow wafer the same way that you would grow a regular LED and then you just dope it a little bit differently. So the MOCVD, which is the metal oxide chemical vapor deposition, I believe, is the way that it's doped to basically shift the band gap energy so that it produces a very specific wavelength of light. We got to go back to basics real quick. (laughs) LEDs, PN junctions, they pass energy back and forth and that excites photons, which produce light. Yep. That's the basis of an LED. That's right. We're shifting something in there. Yeah. So it's okay. So a lower level explanation. I'm glad we're here because I was having a little hard time with MOCVDs. So basically it is changing the properties of the materials that create this PN junction, creates an energy gap. The size of that gap is related to what gets emitted off. Most of the time for standard diodes, you don't see anything, it's just waste heat. But if you have that gap certain size, then it becomes visible light. And you could play with those materials in order to get a very specific wavelength of light. So you could get reds, greens, blues, Nobody really cared about sky blue because there wasn't much visual component to it. As it turns out, that's because these IPRGCs were right there and melanopsin was right there. So it wasn't that the eye didn't use it. It was just that it used it for very different reasons. So BIOS created the first 490 nanometer diode that basically could be added to architectural lighting so that you could have this kind of boost of daytime signal in your standard white light. Because when you do it this way, you could basically create these spectrums of light that aren't cold, that aren't 6,500 Kelvin with this heightened daytime signal. It could be 3,500 Kelvin or 4,000 Kelvin, which is most common in offices, but has this heightened daytime signal. So that we, we basically spectrally optimized or spectrally engineered it to have this 490 nanometer peak signal so that you get the most of your daytime signal in any color temperature you want. If I'm understanding this correctly, and we should probably just take one more quick step back, the first LEDs, so to speak, that could provide sky blue or or stimulate those photoretinal ganglion cells in our eye was a very cool color temperature, 6,500, 8,000 K, something that visually in an architectural environment, we really did not like. And I'm not saying everybody, but 99% of us didn't really like it, right? 
So the thing is, if you had that 6,500 Kelvin, it still has a 450 nanometer peak. It doesn't have 490. In fact, almost every single LED, no matter what color temperature it is, has a trough at 490 nanometers. It doesn't even have some energy there. It almost has absolutely nothing. It's almost a floor there. And they just did it for energy efficiency, just not thinking that there's anything there. 6,500 Kelvin is very cool. So you have to make it very cold in order to overcome the fact that your peak is at 450 when the peak sensitivity is 490 nanometers. You're 40 nanometers away. So what you do is you overcompensate that 450 and what you get is something that you probably don't like that much. You said it's 40 nanometers away and I don't know why, but you know, one nanometer makes a difference. Why does one nanometer make a difference? Because 40 is a world of a difference. That's right. What happens when we shift by one nanometer? Why 490 versus 491? We don't know that much details of, I think that 490 is really an estimation. You know, scientists, if they said 491, that's a very exact number. 490 inherently has some range of error. If it was 486, well, that's also 490. If it was 494, that's also 490. So in color vision, the difference between 500 and 501, that's actually a really big difference. You could absolutely see those differences. These photoreceptors are not looking for color, not looking for precision. They're really looking for a slug of, hey, is it daytime or not? I think for them, it doesn't really matter that much. What does matter as it relates to 490 versus, say, 480 is that you could actually get a lot more of this melanopic signal in the way that it interacts with color vision. So at 3500 Kelvin, you could get maybe 20% more melanopic content by having 490 versus 480, for example. That's like just the way that our vision works and how this melanopic system works. So in in that case, it is really important to think about 490 specifically as the way to get the most bang for your buck. So while we have photoreceptors, the IPRGCs aren't quite as sensitive as the visual system is in terms of what indicator it's looking for. It's something that's important to know because let's face it, we got to commercialize this stuff and we have to be able to make it with a certain margin of error. That's right. LEDs have done wonders here for us. And you mentioned that 490 nanometer LEDs at any color temperature is what you guys were striving to create. Talk to me just a little bit more about what it means to have that across different color temperatures. And is it equal from 27 to 4K, which is a common household set of temperatures today? It's not equal. So the 4000 Kelvin is better than the 2700 Kelvin. But what's important is that the 4000 Kelvin is better than if you were to do with regular LED, you need seven or 8000 Kelvin in order to do it. And one is something you want to have and one is something you you don't want to have. I think there's three ways to achieve the daytime criteria. You could A, just turn up the lights full blast and make it really glary. B, you could do cold color temperatures and make it also glary but off-putting or you could do what BIOS does and we spectrally optimize it so you could get the benefits of it by pushing the right light at the right wavelength so you could basically have the circadian benefits without compromising your design. That's as commercial as it possibly could be. You mentioned something, you're spectrally optimizing these. So you're not creating a specific diode 4490, but you're creating color temperatures that are common, that have a spectrum that's optimized to also support the circadian system in our brains. There's probably an obvious answer to this question, but why isn't everybody doing this? 
I think that everyone should be doing this. And I think that once you start understanding it from a lighting design standpoint, you should probably start recognizing that this should be in all your spaces. The premise of circadian lighting is not a shift work thing. It's not a, a healthcare thing. Everyone should have this. This is almost what we're gonna start understanding that this should be a right to have the right amount of daylight signal in your everyday life. So you're absolutely right. Everyone should be doing this. But I think that manufacturers will make what is asked of them, what people are buying. So it really comes down to the specifiers, the clients, the people to really say, no, I want this. This is something that I need to have because my people are going to be more productive under it. They're going to feel better. They're going to want to come into work. I think that we're getting to that point where we're getting towards the tipping point where if you don't have this, you just have an obsolete product. So I think that people are going to start changing their tune and they're going to start saying that we need to have a 490 nanometer product. Otherwise, I don't have anything that's useful for my office and for my people. And that's obviously research based. And you and your team at BIOS have done a great job of illustrating that. And there's some other folks out in the industry and also people outside of architectural lighting where this is kind of becoming a, a consensus that this is a system that we do need to consider and it can have lasting effects, both good and bad on humans. I feel like we could talk about the research forever, but I want to know what's going on to take this stuff and, like you said, put it in architectural luminaires. What are you guys doing and, and what do you see the trends in the industry to create these opportunities? So we recognize pretty quickly that the lighting industry is full of people who make beautiful things, you know, gorgeous in buildings. They can make different shapes and forms. And so we said, we don't want any part of that. We're going to let those people be good at that. We're good at what we do, which is spectrally optimization, trying to understand the biology, the interaction between vision and, and photobiology. And so we created a light engine that goes inside all of these fixtures. We have now, I think it's 28 partners, architectural lighting manufacturers who basically incorporate our boards, our diodes, LEDs inside of their light fixtures. And so now as a specifier, you have 28 different options of lighting manufacturers for your down lights, your troffers, your linears, your direct indirects, cove lighting, anything you could possibly throw at it, there's going to be a bio solution available for you. I don't know that everyone else has the same kind of open source idea as we had. I think there's a lot of people who are trying to make it proprietary. I think that the opportunity is that everyone should have this. This is, again, should be a right Really, we should not try to compete with one, one another, but try to employ as many people and empower as many people to be able to implement this in their everyday lives. Are you guys manufacturing the chips yourselves? Are you partnered with a larger manufacturer to produce this stuff today? There's a whole history of that, but we started out with chip manufacturers, so we don't make our own diodes. We started out with kind of a lower end manufacturer, if you will the guy who will listen. But now we have evolved into bigger player LEDs. So a, a much bigger, much more um, reliable name brand is making these chips for us. And I think we're coming out with a press release pretty soon about who that is. I think that's really cool that you've taken what you guys are strong at, your research, the science, the understanding, gone and found people who do what they do best and just brought everyone together. What a great pick me up. What a great feel good solution. Not to mention that it literally might make me feel better. You're partnering with a LED manufacturer. 
to give them the opportunity to do what they do best, which is produce the diodes and then turning around and offering that to the architectural community. They're putting lenses or optics or refractors around these things and all that stuff we know can create color shift or can skew the native color off the chip. How do you reassure the design community that they're still getting what they need? That 490 band, albeit it can shift a little bit, still gets delivered the way it needs to be. That's actually a really important question. I'm glad you asked that because the people who offer BIOS aren't our customers, they're our partners. And what that means is that we work together with them to ensure all these things. So we're looking at the fixtures that it's going into. We're talking with their technical team. We're taking spectral measurements. We're basically refining it and making sure that from fixture to fixture manufacturer, it's going to all be consistent. And we're, we absolutely stand behind that premise. Because obviously no two optics are the same. That's right. But you guys have to deliver the consistent light quality. What does that look like for you guys? Is that what your team's doing primarily? Or is that kind of an onboard process and you teach your partners what to look for so that they can continue to innovate? Or do you guys really have to walk hand in hand in these early stages? By and large, if you're behind a diffuser, there's no color skews. With optics, there are some things that you got to kind of learn on the front end. But once you learn that, it's pretty easy to manage it. There's a little bit of a front end development effort for onboarding, as you say. But after that, we're just teaching them the tools that they need to do to basically practice. And then they're, they're off and running. Well, like you said, there's tools people learn and then they can go out and practice. There's one more part that we've got to talk about, but I want to take a quick break. And when we come back, Let's dive into designing with circadian light and what metrics have been written around circadian stimulus. Sound good? Excellent. Yeah, sounds great. Hey, real quick. This podcast is brought to you by LightEye, a new hub for ideas, education, and well, a little bit of entertainment when it comes to architectural lighting. Check them out at lytei.com. And welcome back. Over the break, Robert and I were just catching up a little bit more about what it means to design with circadian lighting. And while we can create this technology now, we can put it in luminaires. At the end of the day, we do have to be able to measure it and we have to be able to justify maybe putting this in the space, paying for it and getting everything else involved. Talk to me a little bit about the metrics that were written around circadian lighting. They're all pretty recent within the last maybe three to five years. And I don't think they're quite done yet either, are they? Yeah, I think that's actually one of the biggest hurdles for adoption. But there are some things, if you look at them all and if you keep up to date with them, as I have, you'll realize that they actually agree a lot more than they differ. So there are a handful of things that they agree on. How many are there? And let's walk through each one of them. All right. So there's the well building standard. They have a melanopic lux metric. The Lighting Research Center has their circadian stimulus calculator and they have a criteria that they're looking to achieve and then the cie has their fancy s026 and their recommendations as well the cie is a melanopic edi which is equivalent daylight intensity all three of them are pretty much the same i'll tell you that they agree on the fact that it's vertical foot candles that are important not what's going on the horizontal plane but it actually is approaching your eye The melanopic lux is basically how much lux, like we think about measuring lux or foot candles, is relative to this daytime photoreceptor, this 490 nanometer sensor. 
the CIE melanopic EDI is exactly the same thing. It is basically how much lux, melanopic lux is coming at your eye. The only way that they differ is in their reference points. So the EDI, the melanopic EDI is about 10% lower than the melanopic lux, but they are identical. Peak sensitivity at 490 nanometers. So there's absolute agreement there. I got to stop you real quick because I want to make sure we define melanopic lux. What is melanopic lux? Melanopic lux is basically how many lux you have. So luxes are photopic visual stimulus. So if you're designing a desk, you're always thinking about maybe foot candles or 300 lux or 30 foot candles is what you want on that space. You probably don't think about how much is going vertical. The well building standard created a calculator that calculates the M to P ratio. So for however many visual stimulus you have, how much melanopic stimulus are you going to get out of this? So if you had an equal energy spectrum, you'd get an M to P ratio of one, basically a flat line. What we've seen is if you had like a 3500 Kelvin standard LED, that M to P ratio is about 0.55. So that means for every one photopic lux you're getting here, you're only getting just over half of that is melanopically weighted or that daytime signal. This is all driven by the IPRGCs. Got it. Melanopsin drives the IPRGCs, which do a multitude of things, one of which is melatonin, the circadian rhythm and, and melatonin base, but it does all these other things. So melanopsin is much more than just melatonin. So we have melanopsin. We have a value of light that's equated to a measurement that we know and use every day, which is the equivalent foot candle or lux level on a task plane. So we flipped it vertical and if you get it in M to P ratio, that's what we're identifying across basically every calculation at this point. If you're designing for the well building standard, that's how you're going to do it. You're going to get the spectrum and have an M to P ratio. You're gonna do your lighting designs. There's a criteria. They have a point system now. So 150 melanopic lux on your vertical plane is what you're striving for. If you do more, 240 melanopic lux, then you're gonna get three points. But that's kind of it. You wanna do your light levels, your light calculations, measure what's going on in the vertical plane, and then you're gonna take whatever the AGI gives you, and then you're gonna multiply it by this M to P ratio, and that'll give you mm -hmm. your melanopic lux. That'll convert it into melanopic lux. How does dosage play into this? Because I've got to assume it's not only a quantity of light, but there's a time factor associated with it too. I will answer your question with a question. How Sounds long good. is the sun up for? It changes every day. It changes every day, but it's up for a long time, right? As long as the sun is up, my belief is that you should be putting that high melanopic content. When the sun okay. goes down, you take it away. The LRC says, you know, maybe the first couple hours of the day, the well building standard says you could do it for four hours a day, but it has to be brighter if you do it for four hours a day. The only reason that there is limitations to different times is because a lot of times it's either too cold and people don't like it. It's too bright and people don't like it. They want to kind of limit that to something that people, okay, I can deal with this for you know only a couple hours. If you made it in a way that is without compromising your aesthetic and it's at a color temperature you like, then it should be all day long. It should be as long as the sun's up, this should be on. And then as the sun Fair. goes down, then you could pull it back. Can you pull the 490 sky blue out of a luminaire at the end of the day? Absolutely. 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 And is that because 
it's just like turning one diode on and the other diode off or how does that happen? Yeah, it's pretty much that. I'll talk about BIOS and what we did because we thought it was important to also make it simple. So we said we know that what people want to do. So a lot of times color tuning systems will have two dials, one's intensity, one's color. But really, the point is brighter days and darker nights. So we put them all together. High up on the dial is full sky blue, maybe 4000 Kelvin. And then as you dim it down, it just pulls out that sky blue first. You see a little bit of a hue change, but it pulls out that sky blue. And then you're left with something that's still, you know, nice to work under. And it's all just one dial. But basically the way that we did it was once it got to 50%, it just pulled out the sky blue only. And then after that, it's pulling down the second channel. And I think we did that. It's important to take guesswork out because you guys are the experts, so to speak, right? You're doing all the research and you understand how to best give people an opportunity. It also gives you a chance to evaluate what's in the market, research it, and maybe adapt in the future. I want to go back quickly and finish our metric discussion real quick, though. We talked about Melanopic Lux. Talk to me about the LRC and the uh, CIE as well. Yeah, so the CIE, the Melanopic EDI, Basically, if you had 150 melanopic lux from well, it would be about 135 melanopic EDI. The weighting function is exactly the same. It's melanopsin that drives it. And they don't have a criteria. They don't say 150 melanopic EDI or you know anything like that. They just say, in general, higher melanopic EDI during the daytime is important for better alertness, better cognition, and a better night's sleep at the end of the day. Um, better circadian rhythm uh, entrainment and a lower melanopic EDI at the end of the day at night is better for sleep initiation and sleep consolidation. So that's kind of what CIE says. Brighter days, darker nights, melanopic is the driver. So those two are in complete alignment. Same thing, peak sensitivity, 490 nanometers, 490 nanometers. Those are the same. The Lighting Research Center has a little bit of a different view, and they actually have two models in one. They talk about this sub-additivity, but if you look at the model, it basically says that this sub-additivity only exists for cold white light sources, and that is generally greater than 3500 Kelvin. For warm white light sources, it's a different model, which is melanopsin, which basically means for 3500 Kelvin and warmer, it's melanopsin. It is the same metric, and in fact, their criteria is a CS of 0.3. And if you look at the data, it's exactly the same as 150 melanopic lux. So the well and CS are in complete alignment from 3500 Kelvin and warmer. It's only when you but get to colder color temperatures that they start disagreeing a little bit. For the most part, it seems everybody is in alignment here on what we need to measure. And what we need to measure is how much light is affecting these specific cells in our eyes. And we can all agree that what light does that is something around 490 nanometers. That's right. We've talked about BIOS a little bit, but what are, what is BIOS doing? How do you guys work? How do you go out and partner with people? What are you doing to push all of this forward to get it into the architectural space? Yeah. So we work with these architectural manufacturers. They license our technology. We are basically the biological experts, so, you know, they don't have to. We go and market, we go and give these talks to talk to designers on how to design for Melanopic Lux, Melanopic EDI, CES, so on and so forth, what the protocols are. We try to create documents to help with clients. We're trying to employ this idea that we all need more Melanopic Lux. We need this daytime signal. 
And so we license the technology to our partners that allows the specifiers and the designers and the, the users to get the benefits without compromising any form factors. But that's basically how we go to business. And you mentioned it's one dial. So it's a zero to 10. It's whatever that Luminar has to dim it. You're taking care of what might be guesswork in terms of setting the levels here. You're giving people a, a light source that pumps sky blue in the day. And as people dim the lights down, it takes it out at the end of the day. What's the TM30 data look like on a BIOS chip? It's an interesting thing. And so there's another piece that we didn't talk about. And to be quite honest, that's session three. We add in this 490, but we also add in a far red because that's really important for our mitochondrial responses to light. So what that ends up having is that we have a CRI of mid 80s, 83 to 85, but we have an R9 of 90 plus. That's actually an interesting mix that people don't see when they think about an 80 CRI thing. They kind of balk at it because they think that the reds are going to be terrible under it. We pump up those reds. And so what you get is actually a really nice red rendition which is what most people like. And then the 80 is because we pumped up the sky blue so much that it kind of pushes everything in that region. So it's a commercially acceptable color temperature, but really nice reds. And that's actually important for our mitochondria, which is a whole other slew of um, biological processes that we didn't get a chance to talk about. CRI, as we know, is an antiquated metric and it's on its way out in the industry. TM30 is being adopted and that visually will show designers not only where it renders light, but how it feels based on what humans perceive as something comfortable as opposed to what a small color set says. So I think it's great that you guys have taken into account that not only does this need to do something for our our biological system, but as humans, we like it when things look pretty. Yep. So on top of that, you do have a residential product. Tell me a little bit about what you've launched there. It's really the same premise as what our commercial product is that full output is high sky blue. And as you dim it down, it pulls out all that sky blue. It's all in a A21 light bulb. We're coming out with a BR30 that is, again, the same premise, day night on a dimmer. And then we've created some more nighttime focused technologies. It's a warmer color temperature, but... We didn't get into this too much, but it basically removes light coming from above the horizon plane. These sky blue sensors are most most sensitive and mostly looking for a radiance coming above the horizon. So we created a, a lamp technology that basically pushes light down and doesn't put any light above the horizon, which is good you know, for a bedroom where you don't have to have this advanced controls where it's more of a, a sleep haven. You don't need to have that day night function as much as you would in say a kitchen or a living room. And it really has a nice aesthetic to it. But one of the other things that we've seen with this light bulb that puts light downward and has a blue depleted light is that it's actually really nice for outdoor applications as well. If you have a porch light or something, it basically directs all the light downward. And I have noticed a tremendous deal. You know, I keep my lights on all night in the backyard. And I realized that it once we switched over to these lights that kind of put light only downward, that my bedroom was actually so much darker because those things were putting a lot of light into my windows. And I'm sure my neighbor's windows as well. And I think on top of that, you guys have a, a lamp that you're making as well now, right? Yeah, we're actually really excited about this table lamp that we've developed. What this does is it is a plug and play office lighting solution. We're basically throwing the kitchen sink, biologically speaking, at a single light that is personalizable to you, app controlled, 
that basically can recreate a 24-hour cycle on your personal desk. But what is magical about it is that it's not just brighter days and darker nights, but it also has a customized sunset and sunrise. And it has this component to it that we call color separation. And it is the idea that when you go outside, it might be 6,500 Kelvin out there nominally, but nothing out there is 6,500 Kelvin. You have this combination of sun that is 5,500 Kelvin and and warmer. And then you have this sky that's 8,000 Kelvin and cooler. And the combination of those two things create what's nominally 6,500 Kelvin. And so what we've created is actually a beautiful product that creates both of those things, that combination of sky and sun and the separated colors that creates that gradient of blues and and yellows on your desk. That is nothing short of, I I mean, I get chills every time I, I talk about it because it takes into account everything we know about color perception, photobiology, what people like. And to be perfectly honest, it feels like it's a portable window. It feels like you'd appreciate this. It feels like you're staring out the window of an airplane. And that gradient of colors that you outside that window is exactly what we've recreated and something that could sit right next to your monitor and produce those sky blue signals where you need it in a very energy efficient manner, but it's also gorgeous to look at. You know, I'm a pretty passionate landscape photographer and I think that's why I love just staring out the window when I fly on airplanes. There's something miraculous to me about the earth, the curvature of it, what mother nature can do. I'll send you my address, 71, I'll let you know what I think (laughs) of it. But hey, this has been really fun to talk to you and catch up and get to know you more and more about BIOS and really dive into the research behind what is uh, 490, what is sky blue and how humans can be affected other than just what we simply perceive. It's clear to me BIOS is just getting started. You guys have a bright future ahead of you. And I I really wish you all the best of luck as you continue to help people create a better experience in an architectural environment. How can people get in touch with you? I think LinkedIn is a really easy way to get a hold of me. I give you my email address. I love questions, but LinkedIn is like a way that I think that it parses it out. So if you send me a note on LinkedIn, I'm absolutely going to get back to you. If you send me an email, sometimes it gets lost in the mess of all the other day-to-day emails we get. How do you spell your last name? Robert Soler, S-O-L-E-R. Robert Soler. Go check them out. Hit Robert up on LinkedIn. Robert and I are friends on LinkedIn. We've had a few LinkedIn message conversations ourselves too. It's a great platform, lots of fun. I'm sure most of you are on it every day. Robert, thanks so much. I've really enjoyed this conversation and I hope that post-COVID, post-pandemic, maybe uh, I can come join you down there on the beach in Carlsbad and we can talk a little bit more about lighting. But until then, stay safe. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, you too.